It's delightful. It's delicious. It's darn expensive to pay for the rights for Cole Porter musicals unless you happen to live in a pretty well-off town in a rural community where, I don't know, you are lucky enough to have a teacher come in and say, we're going to inject art into the lifeblood of this community. My guest today did that. She did it for me. She inspired me to pursue performing arts professionally. Her name is Ricky Lombardo. English teacher, drama teacher at Dover Sherburn High School, and she joins me on a very special Open Loops. I consider it an affront to my family that you haven't heard about Anchor. It's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain, okay? Let me, let me just lay this out for you. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And, and get this, okay? Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money, moolah, from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Uh Uh-huh. Two episodes in a row with shoddy audio. But here's the thing. For years, you couldn't get Ricky Lombardo to open email. When she was a school teacher, she refused to use email. Now you can text her. Now, uh, I mean, you can obviously email her, call her. Uh, I don't believe she's on Insta, but you never know the way the world's moving. Either way, I was happy to take a Google Voice recording of a call over Zoom uh, just because, hey, look, the woman's interesting. Uh, I'm so glad that she's remained a friend of our families over the years and and uh, mine, I, I, I definitely uh, want, to, want to talk to her more after this. You know, it, it's great to have someone that inspirational in your life that's still available for you after the fact. Um, she is a wonderful, wonderful teacher. And even though the audio isn't great, you can feel in her voice. You know, there, there was a friend of mine in the high school program with me that said every time she speaks... Whether it's about, you know, showing up and never hurt. She used to always give these great speeches when it came to, you know, that that week before tech week when everybody was like completely all over the place. The show wasn't together. Like everybody's brains were in different places. There were teenage dramas going on and all this stuff. She would always give like a speech that would inspire everybody to get their crap together. Whether it was that speech, whether it was telling us, uh, you know, the significance of Schindler's List and what it meant to her uh, to see that movie for the first time, or, you know, giving us a speech about why the production of Romeo and Juliet that we saw at Babson College was like an insult to the great William Shakespeare. It didn't matter what kind of conversation she gave, she gave, it would always lead to an applause cue. You would always feel that you could applaud her after. Naturally, one of the best public speakers ever. Uh, that was that was the reputation that she had. And it's absolutely true. I hope I, I captured a little bit of that in this interview. Would have loved to go on longer. Uh, hopefully, maybe we can have her back. But for now enjoy this. This is the woman that, you know, I mean, she wrote my reference letter to to go to NYU. Like, she is the woman that told me, Greg, you should pursue acting professionally. Now, do all of you in the real world agree? Yeah, who knows? But she gave me a lot. And so I share her with you. Here she is, Ricky Lombardo.
Perfect. Okay. This is it. Ricky Lombardo, Ricky Lombardo, so happy to talk to you on the Open Loops podcast. Um, honestly, you know, I, there's so many things. Part of me really wants this to be like the Ricky Lombardo interview, the great uh, – I mean, full disclosure for everyone listening, this is my uh, – at least my initial drama – Theater and English teacher um, in in Dover Sherburne uh, High School, where I went before uh, you left my junior year, which I I'm, I'm still starting I'm starting to forgive you for that. Um, <laughs> but but um, you were you were a legend when I came to the school. I, before we go into this, let me sort of um, hmm, how do I best present this? Everyone knew, I knew growing up that the Dover Sherburne, Dover Sherburne, Massachusetts, high school theater program was very special and very big and very professional, and um, it was something people wanted to all be a part of. Uh, and, you know, I, I, knew of the, I knew of the reputation before I even knew of you leading it. So, yes, I, I knew about the reputation. And look, I mean, I've told you this before. I saw the production of Fiddler on the Roof. That's the one that sticks out to me. Uh, Fiddler on the Roof that you did, I believe, it was 1993 ish. If I'm about right, that was. I mean, it gave me. 94. 94. 94. Yeah. It gave me nightmares. It really gave me nightmares as a young kid. But at the same time, I also remember the program because my babysitter was the Fiddler. Um, and it was great to see her, Caroline. Uh, right. She was the fiddler, and I remember seeing all the kids lined up against the brick walls in the program. And even back then, as a young kid, uh, when I was probably still maybe about to go into kindergarten, end of preschool, I remember thinking, like, this is an awesome – it just looks like these kids are having a great, great time. Yeah. Um, so my question, let's start from the beginning. How did you even end up starting a theater program in Dover, Massachusetts, the small rural town? How did you get there? Well, it sort of goes back to um, 1965, and I started wow. doing – well, actually, even before that. I was involved in the theater program at the high school I went to. I grew up in Marblehead. And we had a dynamite mm -hmm. two things, theater program and literary magazine. And as a kid coming into the school, I loved to write. And I come from a family that has always been involved in theater. My father's claim to fame was that this is from his own mouth, that he wrote the nine worst plays ever written in the world. Um, because he really wasn't um, <laughs> really? a theater. Yes, it was sort of a family joke, but he really did write nine plays. Um, and it wasn't what he was going to be doing for a living. He had gone to the Wharton School at Penn, and he was a banking and finance major. But when he graduated from college, the world was in the middle of the Depression, and bankers were leaping out of windows on Wall Street, and nobody needed to hire a new banker. So after a whole mm. circuitous route, my father actually went back to college at Columbia and became a psychiatric social worker. But along the way, since he was living in New York, he still managed to go to theater all the time and actually did write nine plays that he tried to peddle everywhere, but he was told there wasn't nearly enough sex or violence in them. And this was even a long time ago, that they were just nice little stories, and so nothing ever happened with them. <laughs> So wow. I grew up in a house where my sister and I were taken to theater from the time that we were teeny, teeny little kids. Puppet theater when we were small, children's theater when we were small, and then every single year, multiple trips to Broadway from Massachusetts and lots of community theater, North Shore Music Theater, Boston Theater. So it was, in a sense, in my blood. And when I got to college, mm. I kind of gravitated toward the auditorium and the theater building and stage and became involved in the productions at school. And that just um, – I actually had thought about going into journalism as a possibility um, and teaching journalism. 
And then I met two people, Jean Blackman and Mort Kaplan, who were head of the theater department at Northeastern, and I was hooked. That was it. It wasn't just a pastime that I had done this with my family or that I was in productions when I was in high school. This was a passion. I knew I wanted to be doing this for the rest of my life. So I was involved all of the time that I was there and um, actually almost had to leave the department at one point when um, we were doing a production of Elmer Rice's Street Scene. And I was sitting in the auditorium area watching tryouts going on and saw this incredible man cross the stage and said to my college roommate, wow, who is that? And she said, some foreign guy, I don't know. And it turned out to be (laughs) my now husband of 50 years. And I said, adorable, I think I'm going to marry him. And that became Uh a running joke. Um, But anyhow, the reason I almost had to leave the theater department is we were so enthralled with each other that dress rehearsal night, we never, either of us with our tiny little parts, made it out onto the stage because we were too busy backstage getting to know each other. Um, And Mort Kaplan didn't think it was cute at all, but he was so nice (laughs) to us when we got married. So it started at college. Then I knew definitely this is what I want, and I went to grad school at Emerson when I finished and had a double major in theater history and theater education. So by that time, I was taking directing courses. I had live projects to do. It wasn't just something that happened. There was a huge background to it. You always, I mean, the idea of teaching permanently in a public school, was that in your head at all, or have you been there? No, no, no. Good question. Um, While I was at Emerson, my college roommate, the one who I said to, see that guy, I'm going to marry him, called me because he was teaching English at Dover Sherburn High School. I had never heard of either Dover or Sherburn because I grew up on the North Shore, <laughs> and they're just, I'm sure a lot of people lot in Dover have never don't. heard of Marblehead <laughs> either, but it was just a different world, and she said, um, uh, the man who was chairman of the English department here is looking for someone to fill in starting like in two weeks and possibly till the end of the school year. This was March of my year of grad school. Um, do you think you could do it? And I said, well, uh, I don't know. I really have never t- taken any education courses. Or I just never did stuff like that. Mm. I was always taking courses in my major, which was theater. And I said, get, have him give me a call. I don't know. I never thought about it. So he called, and he was totally charming and said that somebody had to have some kind of really serious surgery, and it was questionable about whether she would be back. So would I come, could I rearrange my grad school schedule and see if I could give it a shot? And that's how I ended up at Dover. And when I came in, back in those days, it was 1969, Dover had no curriculum for the courses. It was sort of the loosey-goosey days. And when I met Mr. Russell, I said, "Um, do you have like a curriculum guide for me? And he said, no, just teach whatever you want. And I said, what do you mean, whatever I want? And he said, well, I don't know. Do you like poetry? Do you like theater? Whatever. There's a whole room full of books, the book we call it, the book room. Just go in and see what's there and basically, like, you know, just keep (laughs) these kids in their seats and teach. And that was trial by fire, how I came to be a Dover Sherburn teacher. And I, the man who was my grad wow. school advisor at Emerson, I also did sort of um, secretarial work for him just to make some extra money while I was in school. And he very kindly um, rearranged my classes. So basically, at I was living in Brookline at the time. At 7.30 in the morning, I was in Dover teaching during the day at 2.20 in my car down to Boston, back to Marlboro Street to park my car to go to courses at Emerson, which is where the school used to be on Beacon Street. And I had classes Mm. there from 4 in the afternoon to 10 o'clock at night, back home to my apartment again, correcting all the papers I had done during the day with the kids because I thought that's what you had to do every day. 
And I did that for three months. And at the end of that time, Mr. Russell said to me, you're a natural. Um, do, you want to, wow. do you want to do this for, for good? And I said, well, I do, but I don't have any of the ed courses, like child psychology. That's what they were looking for. Yeah. So I had to sign up for a quick um, run at Suffolk University, which is the only place that had a course that would suffice and that had an opening at that point. And, in fact, there was no place for me to do – I'd never done student teaching because I wasn't enrolled in an ed program. And they connected me to a very nice man at South Junior High School in Hingham who was mm. directing fifth and sixth grade productions as part of a summer program. And I was there were no classes. I was assigned to him. And basically my student teaching consisted of – designing and pulling together costumes and doing makeup for two junior high shows, which I got a straight A in, but I still (laughs) did not teach even one class. And it it was all based on what my three months had been at Dover. And in September, I became a full-time faculty member at Dover Sherburn. Wow. Wow. That's an amazing story. You know, what's interesting about this story to me is that uh, having talked to a lot of other theater educators and, and just sort of seeing the landscape, it seems that there's a lot of people that come from it the other way. Like a lot of people that there's a trend among teachers that end up directing shows that they actually came to the school to teach English. And they needed a drama program, and maybe that teacher used to do plays when they were in high school. And then they become the full-time person. And it's interesting that you – it's like you had to – it it's the reverse with you. It's like you had this theater passion, and they were like, can you, can you also teach English? Um, which I'm wondering, you know, because in, in my experience, literally having you as my teacher, um, I – I guess I'm even kind of shocked right now as I'm thinking about like really that woman didn't have like a English oh, wait, teaching Greg, background yeah. at oh, all. Oh wait, oh whoa, whoa, wait. Let me back that up. All of my years at Northeastern, I was an English major. Oh, I wasn't okay. a theater major, undergraduate school. Oh my God, no, Shakespeare. <laughs> uh, I was shocked. Uh, you know, <laughs> Brit Lit. Um, years of poetry courses, creative writing. All of the classes that I took at Northeastern were all English with only a couple of theater classes, but full-time, like, extracurricular activity in the theater department. So it was really, academically, it was my degrees in English, not in theater. My grad school, I have (laughs) two grad school degrees in theater, one from Emerson and one from Leslie. But that was as, you know, as I was older, not right out of high school for either one. Right. So it's the thing that pulled you to that job. Uh, I mean, did you did you think in your head, like, I still really want to do this theater thing? Like, if I'm going to be doing English, I don't just want to be doing that. Like, was that ever in your mind, keeping that passion alive? Um, I, I wish I could say that it was a really intellectual or academic decision that I made. I'm going to say something. It's so ridiculous. No, please. Um, It was because Margie is my best friend and has been since we were 17, and she was teaching in Dover, and I thought it might be fun if we were, like, kind of hanging out together again since we had lived together in college, and this would be an opportunity to do that. And I sort of liked the idea of jumping off a cliff that was a safe cliff, but walking into something for which I was totally unprepared and which I came to realize, because I'm not a huge risk taker when it comes to doing things that could cause, let's call it bodily harm. Um, right. I don't skydive. Um, I do cross-country ski. I do not downhill ski. I do <laughs> right, right. that, you know, will keep all my bones in place. But the idea of doing a play Like every single time I come to the cusp of choosing a production and getting ready to start blocking and seriously thinking about what I'm going to be doing, there is this moment of not only joy, but abject terror at what lies ahead, especially when I saw the growth of the program at Dover where there would be a quarter of the school trying out for the musicals. So I, and at that point, there were about 
400 kids in the entire school. The early years that I taught there was not nearly the size that it grew to be. So I was really uh, handling um, a responsibility that I don't mean it was more important than, but it was larger than what any um, coach was handling with any kind of athletic program. At wow. All. Now, wait a minute. So are you saying, what were you, uh, I, just to get some more clarity on this, what exactly were you handed when you walked in? Like, what was the Dover Sherburn drama program when you came in 1969? There was none. There Did was you start the entire time. thing? Well, that's a funny question, too. Uh, two things. <laughs> yeah. First of all, there was a woman um, who was the music teacher, and she was um, – I don't know if you're familiar with who Sarah Caldwell was. No, She was no. head of the Boston Opera Company. She was a very large, formidable woman, probably, I'm not kidding, about 300 pounds, mm. as was this woman who taught at Dover, who um, was very knowledgeable about her music, but not one iota knowledgeable about theater. And yet, when I got there, she was, quote, the drama director, <laughs> even though there was no drama program in the school at all. And she would take kids and um, put them on a stage and basically line them up in a horseshoe. I'm not exaggerating. And so people would get parts, and then when it was like their turn to sing, they would be singing from that horseshoe. There were no sets. What? There were, there were little costumey things, but that was. Were you doing a musical that we'd know? Like, what was this horseshoe show? Uh, <laughs> like maybe the, the Sound of Music or something. Not, not right. anything. You know, like not unknown. Um, but, but there was no action. I mean, people didn't walk around and do anything. There was no character development of anybody. Yeah. The people who were assigned the part sang that part, and then the chorus sang the rest of it. And she pretty much ran a production, a show, like it was the last rehearsal. She actually stood in the pit area as this very large figure and talked during the production if the kids weren't loud enough because there was no such thing as having a real sound system in there right. then. There was no lighting. There was nothing. And she would, with her hand, be kind of conducting and saying, no, 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 come on. Pick up, altos, pick up your voices in the <laughs> right. middle of the production. This is not a rehearsal. And so I kind of watched that and almost passed out. But she <laughs> yeah. owned, she owned that um, that place in the school and keep in mind that by the time I arrived in Dover, I had just turned 23. And mm. this woman was in her 40s and had been with the school for, I don't know, at least a decade, maybe decades. And so I was just, you know, the literally new kid on the block. And there wasn't anything that I was going to say besides which I actually had an on-the-side little drama job of my own. Um, I taught creative dramatics at the Dedham Community House in Dedham mm, to children four, five, and six years old. And um, it, it was a blast doing it. They had almost no budget, and I used to get paid $9 per Saturday of doing the program. I got wow. $3 an hour for doing that job. <laughs> and so I had still the flavor of doing some little theatery things. But I was not going to be traipsing on what was clearly her territory when I got there. Unfortunately, she what was happened? involved in an accident, okay. a car accident, which I am very – she's no longer uh -oh. alive. She would, she would be like 90 if she were alive today. But because of her accident, she ended up having to leave school because she really – she drove a little VW bug that she could barely even get into because of her size. But – she still drove it, and mm. because she was in such a small car, um, the accident really had harmed her physically. And she never – she lived, and she actually came back to school for a little while, but she she just had to leave because it was so um, debilitating yeah. to her. So when she was gone, that was the beginning of a different theater program. And that was when I started, mm. and it wasn't with the musicals. Because in the beginning, the first, I want to say, oh, gosh, 10, 12 years 
it was all straight plays, Greg. All. Like the fall wow. like fall dramas. There were no musicals at that point. And I was getting a second master's degree at that point. So I wasn't really pushing for it yet. And I also was doing directing in the master's program that I was in. So I was really sort of spread out in other places and still doing my little Dedham Community Theater job. Um, and then yeah. finally, um, what grabbed my interest even more than the directing at that point was I had amassed a lot of theater knowledge and went to Mr. Russell, still the Depart English department chairman, mm -hmm. and asked if I might possibly um, be allowed to create theater courses that weren't just things that would be talked about in prep for a production, but actually what they would become um, English department courses taught as theater, and they counted as credit because by that time there was a growing curriculum in the English department, and mm. there was room for there to have been theater courses. And, uh, and over the time that I was in Dover, I actually created five different drama courses that were dramatic literature, acting, um, uh, the multi-arts course. There were mm. lots of different things, but three of them were actually dramatic literature courses. They had essay exams. They had, they had a production aspect to them. Um, and there were some years when I was right. really teaching what classified as one English course and four theater courses. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. You know, yeah. one of the things I, 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 uh, I always wanted to sort of ask you about was something brought up by Miss Prizer, fellow English teacher at the school. Uh, <laughs> I know you guys were pretty close. Um, are you still the Miss Prizer at all? Oh my gosh, we email like five times a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. We're, we're, we're very good friends, Greg. Very good. Her, she, and her husband and Gino and I get together all the time. We go to plays together. They come up and spend time in Canada with us every single summer. So yeah, yeah she was a big fan. I, I mean, <laughs> uh, very much, you know, big fan of your work, obviously. Um, I, we were on, I think it had just happened after the, uh, you know, there there was a, for everybody listening, there was a Ricky Review, which was yeah. like a night put together that was a tribute to your years being at Dover Sherbert High School teaching, bringing back old students, scenes from old shows, songs. Uh, I was lucky. I was still in school, lucky to participate in it. But Ms. Prizer, one of the things she said that I thought was interesting was she was reflecting on the way your time at Dover moved from uh, the, the original type of plays you were doing to Lame is being your last show there. And she said, it was interesting to look back at what Ricky was doing with these early plays and seeing uh, the UNESCO stuff and more, more of that abstract guerrilla theater, theater of the absurd, yeah. like how you were doing that earlier on. And she said, yeah, I wonder sort of, you know, what, if that Ricky Lombardo, like what happened to that Ricky Lombardo? Is that still, does she ever want to go back to that? And I was thinking, that is interesting because that stuff seemed to be, I mean, late 60s, early 70s. That stuff was like very kind of cool, uh, in avant-garde. I was curious sort of, the, I think the conventional advice today is if you're going to start a theater program, do Beauty and the Beast first, do a big budget, big popular musical. Uh, but I was curious sort of how you came to deciding to do more of those abstract pieces and what the reception was as well as the psyches of the students. Because I don't imagine that would work in Dover Sherburn today, at least at least the time when I was there. I think people would be like, what? this is very weird stuff to have to put on a stage. Yeah. Um, again, excellent question, Greg. Well, first let me say that I mentioned two names to you, Gene Blackman and Mort Kaplan, as the mm. two men at Northeastern, and they were not just drama directors at the school. Kaplan was a fabulous drama-lit teacher, and I took his Theater of the Absurd course while I was in school, and I was I was hooked. 
um, the works of, of Beckett, Genet, uh, yeah. UNESCO, I mean, all of them. Great um, stuff. Became, well, I love this stuff. I loved the abstraction of it. I loved the philosophies in it. And um, when I went to Emerson to grad school, I actually, my thesis was 125-page analysis of Theater of the Absurd, which wow. the Dover Sherburn School System paid for because Rich Russell asked to have it left on file at the school so that anybody who would come in after me could possibly use all of the work. It was wow. not just an analysis of Theater of the Absurd, but it was for anybody teaching it. I basically had written my own curriculum so that I could teach the course at Dover, right. which I taught for probably 20 of the years that I was there. And I have to say, I understand why you would think today kids would go, what? What is this stuff? Like, yeah, however, right. back in the day, in the 70s and the 80s, even into the 90s, um, the course, because I think it was challenging to a lot of people, not just on a theatrical level, but challenging in terms of the questions that it posed of mm. who am I, where am I going in this world, what's it all for, which are pretty basic archetypal questions, but um, but I think have particular appeal for people who are high school age. Um, I taught, I cut off the class at 25 because I didn't want more kids than that sitting in there because I felt that it really could be damaging to the incredible discussions that used to go on wow. in those classes. And the final exam for that course, despite the fact that there was a written essay exam after each play taught, at the right. end of the course, the final exam was a 45-minute memorized production project worked on by kids in the class. One day a week was a, an acting day in the auditorium, and people would get into their groups. And then um, as they were rehearsing, I walked from group to group, listened, answered problems, made suggestions. And kids also had a once-a-week shot coming to my house in Sharon, and I met alone with each group on a once-a-week basis prepping them for their final production. Wow. It was enormously huge. Every year I had 50 kids, 50 seniors in that, that dual two-section theater of the absurd class. Why did that stop before me? This, this also makes me sad. <laughs> I'll oh, forgive you well, for leaving my junior year, but now, <laughs> yeah, you're adding more, well, you're adding more. Theater, theater of the absurd morphed into um, – just a, a straight kind of like history of, of theater course, a, just a dra drama lit course that was um, a span, most of it more, um, more I want to say American theater, but there was still a lot of European theater in it. Just because I think as times changed, Greg, the, the desire to be mucking around in that kind of philosophy all the time um, was not something that white might have been as appealing to kids. And so I definitely wanted to save the core of, of what was going on in there. And the way to do it was to move to more. I still taught some absurd plays in that mm. later course, but more of it was stuff that I think was able to be grasped. And I do have to say, Greg, more by the parents than the kids. Because I think that there were parents who, well, one parent actually, um, well, actually, I dealt with more than one parent question about yeah. the work. Oh, oh, so by the way, at the end of the Theater of the Absurd projects and the regular, what became modern drama course projects, parents were invited to the production um final productions that the kids did on the stage no other kids there was no audience this mm. was a class project but by the time we were at the end of the course the parents of the kids who were doing their project that day only were invited to come and see their kids and um and so along the way the kids chose their plays i didn't choose them for them 
And I think for some of them, it was a life-changing experience. But I remember in particular a mother of one young woman who seemed quite shy and not very talkative um, at the outset, opted to do a big scene from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and wanted to play the role of Martha. And when she approached me with that, I really kind of looked at her. She, The kid was brilliant. And she had straight A's in the course, but never spoke in class. And I said to her, Marianne, if you would like huh. to do it, go for it. But when her family came and watched, um, her mother came up, and, and she and the other three people who did George and Martha and Honey and Nick in the play they got a standing ovation from the class and the parents who were there because wow. it was good enough to have been a community-wide production. That's how good it was. And the mother said to me, I, I do have to say they did a fabulous job, and we saw a side of our daughter that we never even knew existed. And I do want you to know that her response to us having done this was, I always secretly wanted to go to law school and be a lawyer but I never thought that I had the guts to stand up in front of an audience and present myself even in a courtroom. And now that I've done this whole Martha thing, I'm going to go to law school. So wow. on the one hand, she said, and she did, and she is a lawyer in Boston to this day. So her parents were really happy about it, but she said, I do have to also say, though, I am sad that, that these kids are exposed to this, you know, type of dramatic literature, they're so young. And my response to the mother was, well, you're talking about an 18-year-old senior in high school that it was only seniors in the class who is on her way out the door heading off to college. And um, this ain't nothing yet. So, yeah. you know, this is like a little foot out into the world. I think, yeah, parents were really beginning to want – their kids to be doing Beauty and the Beast, Greg, just what you said before. Like, can we mm. have to disney the program a little bit so that it will be more child-friendly because people yes. were still clinging to their, like, little bubbles and didn't want them to grow up and see sad things and hear marital right. discord or whatever. So um, I allowed for a little of that to enter into it, but not a lot. And um, I... I always ended up having a really good relationship with parents in the community, to which, by the way, I attribute a lot. I want to say more than 50% of the success of the program. Because yes. I could never have found a better group of parents ever um, yeah. than I did at Dover Sherburn to support the program and the productions themselves. Yeah, I think about uh, for certain, I mean, definitely even beyond just seeing your show and uh, Fiddler on the Roof when I was younger, I, I mean, where would I have heard about the high school program from all the parents talking about it? Uh, doing the little community theater production. I mean, I was in Oliver when the Dover Foundation did it uh, probably around 98. And even back then, they were like, oh, this is great. You should check out what the high school is doing, too. Like, I heard whispers about that. Um, so I definitely think that there was a lot of positive talk about everything you were doing in the community. You know what I was thinking about the other day, interestingly enough? Um, sorry to tangent. Uh, this is a bit of a tangent, but you were the one that there was a class we did where you talked about how Disney came in and changed the landscape of Broadway. Yeah. Like they really, and there was a lot of criticism about, I think you even said Disneyfication of uh, yeah. Broadway. <laughs> and I, isn't it so weird that Hamilton is their property? To, I just thought that was such a, such a, a weird, ironic twist, perhaps. I'm not sure I'm using irony correctly, but yeah. I just thought it was weird that Disney Plus is, they took ownership of perhaps, the arguably the greatest Broadway play in the last 10, 15 years. I 100% agree with you. <laughs> Even though they changed Broadway, like they so dumbed it down and Hamilton yes. brought the intelligence back up. Yes. So I just thought it was weird. It was a weird twist of fate. And I thought back to you as I was watching it the other night going, Ricky said Disney ruined a lot of Broadway and look what they own now. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's why you have to stay open. I think when you're involved in an art form, 
that you have to have your own vision of what mm. it is you want to be working in and on, but at the same time, you have to have your pulse on the audience. And that also, Greg, was responsible for part of the change that you just asked about earlier, about less less theater of the absurd, like in my fall plays. I mean, that was never, ever part of the musical scene. Right. And And more, I began to see through courses that I was teaching and discussion that took place in the classes, that as much as there was this unbelievable veneer to Dover Sherburn, that it was sort of Walter Crapo, who was a, a guidance head of the guidance department at school, and a wonderful, wonderful man who was gone long before you were there. Mm. He used to refer to DS, and he did love it. It was with humor. He called it La La Land. Because he he said, yeah, it's like this little perfect world that the parents present and their children are growing up and everyone has pretty flowers and mothers bake good cookies and everybody gets along and all of that. And, um, and he didn't mean it cruelly at all. And he was much loved by the community and he loved the kids who were there. But in any event, what I came to see was as I matured, as I was older and I was married and I had children and got to know people in the community really well. Gino and I were in many people's homes for mm. dinner, for for events in their family. To this wow. day, Greg, a lot of our closest friends are former Dover Sherburn parents. Wow. And wow. Dover Sherburn students. I mean ranging in age from your age up to Richard Robinson, who we see all the time, who is right. 66 years old. So there's this whole gamut remembering that I was only four years older than the kids I was teaching the day I walked right. in the door as a teacher. Yeah. So it, And because of that, I saw little windows of things that were troubling sometimes, sad sometimes. And when it came to doing the fall play – Rather than dishing out a little more Samuel Beckett onto everybody's plate, <laughs> I thought, you know, a, a serving of Neil Simon couldn't do any harm around here. Right. So maybe a little bit of Plaza Suite, California Suite, uh, whatever it was, I ended up doing probably six or seven Neil Simon plays over the yeah. years because people wanted an escape. They wanted to laugh. They wanted to be entertained when they came in to see a very different from a musical where the movement of the musical, the musical music itself, the, I mean, how many straight days people through when there was either political turmoil going on in the nation we were living in mm. or turmoil in people's own personal lives? So I saw there was another English teacher, Ann Copice, yeah, I've had who her. was also doing straight little fall plays. I mean, we would do more than one a year at some point. And Ann was completely into Irish theater and mm. did these, like, really heavy-duty Irish plays. One night when Gino and I went to one of her productions, there were four of us sitting in the audience. The Dover Sherburn parents did not want to come and see old Irish plays. Right, and right. And so Anne did a few, and then that was the end of that. And so call it um, pandering to an audience. Part of the way in which the program got built, that English that that was meant to be, was by right. feeling the pulse of the community, seeing what it was that people might want or need, and giving that to them and yet still having kids have a theatrical experience and a play that might have some, even a small or fleeting message that was nice to have out there and create a, a good theater evening for the people who came. Yeah. Did you ever uh, – that, that is uh, – yeah, I, de I definitely think you captured that uh, that spirit for sure. Uh, was there any time that you ever – I, I feel like I know the answer to this, but was there ever a show that you were ever a show you did where you were like, ah, oh, 
I'm doing this show just because I know the people want it and the community needs it, but this really is not something I want to put on. No. No. That's that's amazing integrity. Yeah. Okay. So I have two integrity questions, and it's very interesting to me, Greg, that you recall as a child Fiddler on the Roof. Because Mm. after I retired from Dover, I received a number of job offers, neither of which I was seeking. And one of them was right here in Foxborough. I got a phone call from a woman who was chairman of the board from the Uncommon Theater, which actually does live productions at the Orpheum Theater here in Foxborough, uh, which has a couple of adult theater groups that do shows there during the year, kind of like Dover Foundation things, as well as Uncommon Theater, which is a children's theater group. And she asked if I would consider coming in because she had seen the Fiddler production in 1994 in Dover because she had friends who lived wow. there. And they, she and her husband had been their guest at, an, at one of the evening performances. And she said, I've never forgotten it. And I heard that you retired and we are planning on doing Fiddler next fall. Would you consider directing? Yeah. So I went to the interview, which had the board present. And I'm still talking about integrity. I know I'm being circuitous about this. But I know, I know. <laughs> so sat there and I listened to what their expectations were and what they did. And um, they they did not come right out and ask me what I was earning in Dover. Um, not that I would have told them anyway, but mm-hmm. they said because they were a small like community theater group, it wasn't piles of money that the job of of three months of directing the show would probably come in around $2,000, which was way less money than I was earning in Dover. But I didn't care about that because it didn't matter. Um, But then um, the woman who was the chair lady of the board said, um, well, well, one thing I really should tell you and up front is I, I don't know how you're used to, like, casting your shows, but there's sort of a tradition around here that um, children of board members usually, like, get parts in uh, the show. Yeah. So, um, wait, did you hear the long, silent pause that followed? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, I see. Well, um, and so anything that even – forget the money. I didn't care about the money. Um, as soon as I heard that, I said, well – I don't think I'm the person for you um, to do your show because I would never, ever cast a play based on whose mommy or daddy sat on a board or painted sets or sewed mm. costumes or built staging. Right. It's out, of the, it's out of the question. I said, and in fact, during my tenure at Dover, there was a parent who was extremely active in helping out, and as I encouraged parents to be, because I loved their connection to their kids through the shows, and I loved them just being involved in this arts process that we were all working on, but I made it very clear that that was never, ever on the table as an option to anybody, and if anybody thought that the amount of sweat equity that they were going to invest in, no matter how great they were, that that was going to lead to some solo for their kid, then they really should not like be there because it was right. never going to happen. And I thanked them very much, and I left. And that was the <sighs> end of my never working at the Uncommon Theater in Foxborough. Um, wow. And so would I do a show I didn't love? Never. Would I cast a person I didn't in my gut feel deserved that part? Never. Yeah, I I even know that uh, that I mean you've told the story about uh, casting your daughter in West Side Story and how yeah. you were basically pressured from the other teachers. To well, it was Marilyn Dowd who was the vocal co- coach, and she said Lauren has a beautiful voice. You have never given her a lead. You know what? You shouldn't punish her because she's your mm. kid. She deserves the part. Let her yeah. have it. Yeah, no, absolutely. But, but, you know, I don't have to tell you, like, it's really easy for these, like, little family dynasties, especially in arts groups, 
and I'm not naming any names here, but right. I don't think it's necessary to, uh, to, you know, you're there and you just think about your little schnooky baby, like, oh, my <laughs> kid, my, my little funny boy or my beautiful daughter, like, of course they will get that part because I'm directing yeah. the show and they're like, oh, so talented. And I never, ever fell into that at all. Wow. Ever. And you so, know, uh, yeah. No, that's yeah, I, I I applaud you for that. Uh, you know, Ricky, as as we're gonna wrap up in the next you know five or so minutes here, uh, and again, I could definitely go on for two hours. I mean, this could be. We'll have to. <laughs> I mean, to, I, I, yeah, no, this is really good. I could keep going. I could keep going. Um, I was curious, sort of, about the way you thought about yourself in terms of legacy. And here's what I mean. And it's actually, it's related. You, you made me think about this with regards to theater of the absurd and sort of the ideas that you were starting to have kids ask uh, themselves at the high school level, asking about who am I? What is my purpose in this world? Um, mm -hmm. I even remember there was a student, I don't remember his name, uh, or but, but one of your former students I think probably in the late 70s, early 80s, he would have been in a play, and he talked to me during the Ricky Review, and he said, this woman saved my life. Um, also, I know that somebody – I've heard that story before. There was uh, one, one of the choreographers uh, who was doing the show. I mean, there, there, there were a lot of dark times for students, it seemed, that your program and – Maybe just your, your you as a person, your program gave them an outlet to express themselves and uh, get past their darkness. So I was kind of curious about this. How conscious were you of making sure that these kids were seen in this community? Like, is this this sort of therapeutic work? that goes alongside being a good teacher. I think a good teacher in general is looking out for the emotional lives and pains of their students, but like also treading the line of not getting too intrusive too, obviously. Um, I'm curious sort of your relationship to that because I feel like you did help a lot of people that were down. And I was curious if you were like looking for that in people did you know that they were going to have this legacy when you left, that you profoundly transformed people? Like, what was sort of your, uh, yeah, your mindset with regards to really helping the emotional lives of these teenagers? Mm. Well, I, I should, should start off by saying that as much as I believe every single teacher should be master of whatever the subject matter is that he or she is teaching – to me, that's on a second rung of the ladder. Mm. And the first rung of the ladder has everything to do with the interpersonal relationship between the person standing or sitting at the front of the room and the people who are sitting there looking to that person for lots of things. But to me, the most important part of that is the individual student to teacher. How to help that student unfold his thoughts in the process, mm. watch his growth and development as material that might help that along, but not just the mastery of the material. What effect does it have on his life that he will be taking with him for the rest of his life? The productions that the kids had to do in the drama classes, it wasn't how well were you going to master the play could you possibly embrace theater as a career? It was the personal challenge of who are you? What will you do with this conundrum that has been handed to you where you will have to be presenting yourself emotionally, physically, intellectually, in the framework of doing a piece of theater that will bring back information to you about who you are? Just as that girl, who I, I will use her name because it's only in positive, Marianne Jamian, went mm. on to become a lawyer because she saw the spark in herself. I didn't put it there. I provided a platform for her to find it in herself. And to me, that's the job of a teacher. 
And if you're not doing that in a class, then all you're teaching is material. You're not mm. teaching anything that is valuable and valid for the development of a human being for the rest of that person's life. Wow, wow. And is that something and, and, that you had in well, – oh, sorry. As, as yeah, how do you get that mindset? Far, <laughs> uh, 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 let's – I think – you know how I said to you my dad – like wrote the nine worst plays and we all yucked it up in the family about that. And so I came to theater very early as a child because of it. I grew up in a household, Greg, with two parents who were psychiatric social workers. And mm. my sister and I, they were both directors of agencies on the North Shore. And, um, and sometimes they shared client families. And we grew up in a family where we knew anything our parents discussed at the kitchen table never, ever went beyond the front door of our house and that we didn't discuss anything that they might have discussed. And they were caring, loving, compassionate people. My father wrote a weekly um, column for our local newspaper called Because Someone Cared. He brought hundreds of people, refugees, over from the Second World War and wow. settled them in the North Shore area. When he retired, there were over 800 people at his retirement party from Hungary, the Czech Republic, Poland, people who he had given lives to by bringing them here through his agency um, on the North Shore and found them apartments and got their children into schools and made lives people and we grew up in a household where that was the norm where on Thanksgiving a woman who was a mental patient at Danvers State Mental Hospital sat at our dining room table because her own family didn't want her at holidays and my mom and dad used to go and pick her up in our car and bring her home and so Sophie had Thanksgiving with us every year that we were children and at the end of the celebration we drove her back to her place up at the hospital. So where did it come wow. from? It, it was, let's say, in my blood. And so when there were kids who were really in need, and I, I, it was interesting that you said about, you know, knowing where that line is, how much do you improve yeah. yourself, and where do you back off? Part of it, I think, um, I hope I was intelligent enough not to insert myself way beyond where I should have been, but there were definitely times, Greg, when I went out on a limb and probably engaged in a, a situation in a kid's life that other people might not have touched with with a long pole because it could have been fraught with issues uh, uh, that that just nobody else would have touched. But when I saw that there was a human need, I just didn't really care what might happen if mm. I became involved. There was someone sitting in a room crying. There was someone who ran out of a classroom and was hiding in a closet, literally. And right. I needed to follow through and just be a person for that person. It didn't matter. And if there was going to be garbage that followed, if I had to sit down in Dick Wakeley, the then administrator of the school's office, and explain myself, I would have no problem doing that at all. None. Somebody was hanging on by their fingernails, and it was my job to do something to help them. Wow. Wow. Well, Ricky, that is an amazing perspective. Again, I could keep diving more. Um, I hope to do this again at some point because there's so, so much more. But I really – look, I thank you for your candor, your honesty, and – uh, again, inspiring me to keep going and pursuing my dreams as a performer as well. So yes. um, I tell you that all the time, but I thank you for doing this. My and pleasure, Greg. And, and stay in touch. It doesn't have to Absolutely. be for this. Just stay in touch and we'll, let me know what's going on with you, okay? Absolutely, I will. All right. All right, let's go through it right now. Skin of Our Teeth, freshman year, I was the convener and Fred Bailey, and then maybe some other part offstage. Anything Goes, freshman year, I was Elijah Whitney. Then, sophomore year, I was in a production of California Suite, but we did a scene from Plaza Suite. I was Roy Hubley. And then the spring show was Susical the Musical, and I was the mayor of Who. Then, junior year, The Odd Couple. Ricky cast me as Oscar Madison. 
one of my best uh, times I ever had on stage. And then my final show with her, the one that ended junior year, I was so upset she didn't stay one more year, I was the master of the house and Les Mis. What a colorful collection of shows I was able to do with her. Uh, honored that I was able to perform. Taught me so many things. You know, I, I announced to uh, one of the local Facebook groups that I was going to release this interview. And there were comments saying, Ricky was a great teacher and coach. People saying that they still have their day in the life final paper. Uh, that she was... Th- Uh, people became a teacher because of her best teacher ever i mean you bring up her name and it inspires that much legacy so again thank you ricky for coming on thank all of you for listening this has been open loops please subscribe rate leave a review if you like the show and carpe diem seize the day